Hello and welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are Groundworks, Inc. I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus Creek. And we design, install, and maintain gardens in and around New York City. Uh, we are broadcasting from Heritage Radio Network in two shipping containers in Bushwick outside of Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street in Brooklyn. Um, we Dig Plants is produced by Jack Inslee and engineered by Nat Wiener. And our sponsor today is Acme Smoked Fish. They are located in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, not far from here, and Acme has been a mainstay in New York's culinary landscape for over 55 years. Using an old, old world recipes, Acme produces the finest smoked salmon, whitefish, sable, and sable that discerning palates demand. For information on where to find Acme, Blue Hill Bay, or Ruby Bay products, visit www.acmesmokedfish.com. Hey, Alice. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Alice and I have this discussion each fall about cooking because we're obsessed with food as well as gardening and how we're spending our weekends. What are you cooking? What are you making? What are you eating this weekend? And sharing family recipes. And we have friendly discussions about our cultural heritage, Mediterranean, in my case, Southern, in Alice's case. And today's show is about chestnuts, which are featured in both of our culinary um, families. Um, mine... Um, uses chestnuts in a lot of different ways besides feeding them to their family hogs. <laughs> well, that's how I used them too. <laughs> you got to fatten up the hog for Christmas. <laughs> but fatten up yourself too. That's true. Are. And they use them, they make it into chestnut flour and they use it in baking. So um, we're going to talk about that today and we have a really great guest. And then later on in the fall, we're going to talk about pecans, which is not an Italian thing. That's a Southern thing. Pecans. Pecans. Did I say it wrong? Did I? Pecans. Yes, ma'am. Pecans. All right. I'll say pecans. I'll say clematis too. Um, so chestnuts, rich in fiber and protein and good food stuff for hogs and for people. And for the masses. And for the masses. These are nuts that we can control versus some of our clients that we can't control. Yeah, we wanted to have a show about nuts, but of the... <laughs> but um bum But um bum But we couldn't get any of our, our clients on the radio. <laughs> so we decided to do chestnuts instead. So We Dig Plants brings the culture to horticulture. And because it's fall and we're moving indoors and it's cooking and fattening up, as Carmen was talking about... Um, we have a great guest today from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in New Haven. And welcome, Sandra. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Sandra, I'm going to ask you to pronounce your last name so I don't butcher it. <laughs> okay, it is Anagnostakis. Okay, Anagnostakis. And, and that's why everybody calls me Dr. A. <laughs> okay, we'll stick with that. Okay. okay, Dr. A. So, um, a little bit about your background. You went to college at University of California in Riverside, and then right. you went to University of Texas in Austin um, and studied the genetics of slime mold mm -hmm. and got your master's in botany. Right, and then I got my doctor's, uh, doctor of agronomy degree in Germany. Okay, great. And then I see that you have, uh, in uh, 1966, you joined the staff of the Connecticut um, Agricultural Experiment Station mm -hmm. in the Department of Genetics, and you study the genetics of fungi as found in the corn smut disease and Dutch elm disease. But now you're currently working on chestnut blight disease, um, and you develop breeding experiments to produce better timber and orchard trees. That's right. 
good. So you're the expert today in our discussion of chestnuts. Great. So we thought we'd start with a little history. Carmen's going to start with a little history. And Sandra, please join in and add anything that we've, you know, forgotten. <laughs> this is a huge topic. <laughs> yeah. It is indeed, yes. Well, as we were saying, chestnuts, uh, the chestnuts that we know originated in the Mediterranean where cereals couldn't grow so well, and they became a real staple in the diet of the area. Um, uh-huh. We have a quote from this gentleman named Targioni Tozzetti, an agronomist uh, in Tuscany in 1802. He says, the fruit of the chestnut tree is practically the sole substance of our Highlanders. So I'm a Highlander. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a Highlander, too. Yes. We're mountain folk. Yeah. <laughs> it was like to say that. Yeah, in fact, when I go to Italy, most of the mountains... Uh, in my region are covered in chestnut trees. Uh-huh. So, um, and in fact, in 1879, Frederick LePay noted that chestnuts almost exclusively nourish entire populations for six months of the year. In the European system alone, they are a temporary but complete substitution for cereal. So it's the food of rural peasants in mountainous regions from Portugal to Turkey. Um, a 1763 text reads, quote, All the goods nature and art lavish on the table of the rich do not offer him anything which leaves him as content as our villagers when they consume their helping of chestnuts after attending their rustic occupations. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> as soon as they set eyes on them, joy breaks out in their cottages. They become forgetful of their fatigues and are no more, and are no more envious of the rich and town life. I found that hilarious. <laughs> I, know. I don't think my ancestors would agree with that statement. Rustic <laughs> occupations. Happy peasants. Happy yeah. peasants. Alice, don't we have a rustic occupation? I think so, yes. <laughs> but we're not eating chestnuts every day. We don't get excited when <laughs> we see anymore. them. Not anymore, and we'll talk, we'll talk later on about why we're not eating them so much. Um, um, don't forget that uh, China is the biggest producer of chestnuts. Yes. Uh, with about 1.6 billion pounds a year. With Korea close, not too far behind. Right, right. So, yeah, the the history that we um, kind of uh, concentrated on was is more the Mediterranean history. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I want to talk um, after the break a little bit with you about kind of the decline of of the chestnut and why that happened and and what the future is and the trees themselves and harvesting and collecting and. All of those good things. So those peasants, uh-huh. uh, they ground it into flour, and they used it for bread making, as in the, quote, wooden bread from Corsica, also as thickeners for stews, made into soups, polenta, etc., and, of course, eaten raw or just roasted like my family does every, every uh, winter. Um, and as calories, as they dry, they increase in caloric value from their loss of water. So dry, they provide twice the number of calories, so they're easy to transport and eat while on the road in rustic pursuits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, they have, they're an amazing source of vitamin C, which I didn't know that. The only nut to provide vitamin C, isn't that right, Sandra? Well, they're not really nuts. They're, you have to Fruits, think of them yeah. as a fruit. That's right. right. It's a fruit, technically. Um, so they were not only important in the diet, but they were also used for medicinal purposes, um, historically to protect against poisons, for example, the, the bite of a mad dog, and to protect against dysentery, um, according to ancient Greek and Roman writings. In fact, at one time in France, in the late 1700s, chestnuts were considered to be also a sugar producer, and France seriously thought about commercial production of sugar from chestnuts, but... Instead, Napoleon chose to get sugar from beets. Beat it, chestnut. (laughs) (laughs) 
So anyway. nothing like a horticultural pun. We've tried to squeeze one in in every episode. <laughs> so don't feel like we're singling you out and not taking you seriously. <laughs> so we've just covered Europe. So tell us um, about American chestnuts. Well, American chestnuts were um, always fairly important, grew grew up and down the Appalachian mountain range and uh, in this country as well as in Europe and, and in Asia, too. It was the poor people who took advantage of these wonderful nuts and found that they could provide a good nutritional supplement for whatever else they had to eat. So mostly in the southern United States, they were an extremely important crop for providing extra food. And um, I just found out recently that the Cherokee Nation calls one of our native chestnuts the bread tree. Oh. And mm-hmm. uh, so those, those are the Ozark trinkopins, mm-hmm. uh, another species that grows here in the United States. So they were important to the Native Americans and also to the poor people living in the southern United States. Yeah, um, my my grandparents always talked about chestnuts, but I never really ate much of them. Um, Carmen actually kind of more introduced me to chestnuts. Mm-hmm. It's really sad that, that relatively few people now in the United States are aware of what a wonderful food these these nuts, uh, not really nuts, these, these fruits. fruits are. <laughs> um, the reason we have to think of them as, as fruits is fairly important because everybody knows that with nuts you get a bunch of them from the store and you put them on a, in a wooden bowl on your table and they right. stay there and they're good forever. But since chestnuts really are fruits, they have to be harvested uh, promptly when mm-hmm. they're ripe and then kept in the refrigerator. Usually we keep them, store them in plastic bags, for instance, in the refrigerator, and then they'll keep fairly well. But if they're left out on the table, they dry and become pretty much useless pretty fast. Yeah, it's true. That's why um, my parents actually don't tell this to APHIS or the plant inspection people, but my parents did bring some chestnuts over from Italy. Uh-huh. to taste and I have them in my fridge you know and when I want some you know I'll I'll notch them and roast them you know they they keep for a very long time but I always wonder about the ones in the markets that are sitting out there you know drying like for weeks on end how good they're going to be you and know? they're going to be moldy and really taste awful and people won't ever buy them again and what good is that for our chestnut marketing ventures yeah, yeah. Well, what I was taken with was just the labor um, to, to actually get these fruits out of that shell and, and you know, the harvest time. I, I found that really interesting. Can you talk for a few minutes about that? Sure. Um, the, the characteristics of, of individual species are a little different, but basically when the nuts are ripe, the burrs, which are very prickly, yeah. open up and the nuts drop to the ground. And I, I have lots of wonderful pictures of people in Italy and Portugal bending over and picking up these nuts off the ground. But in fact, commercially, they're usually harvested with large machines that sweep and vacuum up the, everything that's on the orchard floor. They, they collect the, the 
the uh, burrs that have dropped and the nuts and leaves and twigs, and then their uh, air blows over them, and the nuts are easily separated and brought back to the uh, barns where they can be processed. Mm-hmm. But manually, um, you know, I, I read that it takes 10 hours of labor for an average collection of about 100 pounds. So that's very laborious. Uh, well, if you're picking them up by hand, by hand I suppose yeah, that's yeah. true. My assistant and I uh, were were working this fall to pick up at least a thousand nuts from about five trees, and we did it by bending over and picking up the nuts for the most part. Yeah, that's a good hamstring workout. It was a really good. Oh, I I feel so fit. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, I don't know how many pounds that that uh, corresponded to, but it took hours to collect uh, the nuts we wanted from each individual tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a statistic that I found interesting. To peel four pounds of raw chestnuts, which was the average daily consumption um, per adult in the first part of the 19th century, required about 40 minutes. So therefore, like three hours or more of chestnut peeling was required for the average rural family of five. Oh, my goodness. So that's a lot of work just to eat. That's a lot of work, yes. (laughs) Yes. And that's why that caloric intake um, is is so important because if you're going to work that hard, you better get a good benefit from it. You know? That's right. Well, the other thing to consider is that when you're talking about the, the amount of time it takes to peel all those chestnuts, in the United States, people were peeling and eating American chestnuts, which are quite small, mm-hmm. whereas the uh, chestnuts that are produced in Asia and in Europe and, in fact, many of the commercial cultivars grown in this country, they have very large nuts, so that one nut is about the size of five or six small American chestnuts. Oh, okay. So if you were going to stuff a turkey... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which ones would you buy? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And people do pay more for the larger ones. Yes, they do. Yeah. Of course, there are, there are flavor trade-offs, uh, there are uh, the chestnut growers of America have uh, spent a lot of time talking about different cultivars and obviously which grow best in which part of the country, but also which ones taste the best and which ones are best for one kind of cooking or another kind of cooking or turning into sweet things or um, whatever the, the ultimate outcome. But different cultivars are really quite different, not only in size, but in flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there's also the drying of chestnuts, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which, you know, really, it, it ends the kind of irksome chore of daily pe- uh, peeling. Um, That's right. Well, there are commercial peeling machines now. Sure, now, yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, you know, with with the drawing kind of historically grew up towns that um were kind of centered around around these these orchards so mm-hmm. it, it mm-hmm. really it really was a was a very important kind of dietary um effect mm-hmm. and in, people took in europe yeah yeah, in yeah europe. and they took good care of their their woods you know, because the trees produced for a very long time, didn't they, Sandra? Oh, yes. Yes, they can live for hundreds of years. 
Right. Yeah. So yeah. they would uh, they they would not chop down the chestnut wood to make furniture. <laughs> no. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, they definitely took really good care of their woods. It was a prized thing, you know, uh-huh. to have um, in that area. So let's talk um, a little bit about um, the trees themselves. Tell us about planting and and disease. Okay. Um, in the United States, the places where chestnuts grow are somewhat restricted. They like acid soil that's well-drained, and the native range of, of uh, the American species is uh, the eastern part of the United States in the mountainous areas, up and down the Appalachian Mountain Range. But chestnuts also grow fairly well in the northern part of the Midwest. In Michigan, there's a, a big industry of chestnuts in Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, Wisconsin, um, and there are chestnuts grown in Missouri. Uh, University of Missouri has a big uh, marketing and uh, chestnut growing section. And on the West Coast, there are quite a few grown. Uh, on the West Coast, in um, in California and Portland, um, mostly it's in Northern California. Mm-hmm. Um, some in Oregon and a few in Washington. Okay. And in all these places, there there are different cultivars that do well because uh, the different species have different characteristics and requirements, and so hybrids have been made to suit individual areas and and, uh, places where they can be grown. Right. We have to take a break. Um, We're going to be back in one second to talk more with Dr. A about uh, chestnuts. You're listening to We Dig Plants, and we're talking about chestnuts. That was a tribute to uh, Vic Chestnut, a song called Flirted With You All My Life. Nice and song. Yeah. Good old Vic. Um, so, welcome back, Sandra. And we're going to talk about the work of chestnutting. Yes. <laughs> Which is As actually a term. Nutty chestnut people. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, growing chestnuts in the United States, I, I would love to see more people growing them. Right. Well, tell us a little bit about the disease um, associated, because that, that really kind of decimated the chestnut population. Is that right? It absolutely did. Um, 
The first one in the United States was a root disease that they called ink disease. Probably came over on Portuguese cork oak trees that were planted Mm. in the southern United States. And that disease is still very serious in the southern United States. There are a lot of places where you can't grow chestnuts or a number of other trees because of this disease. Mm. And then when people started importing Japanese chestnut trees into this country, which was about 1876 and a little after that, a new disease came in from Asia, which was a canker disease causing wounds, got into wounds on the trees, and the the uh, organism, which is a, a fungus, grew all around the stem or the trunk and killed everything beyond the canker. And the combination of those two diseases really uh, had a serious impact on the chestnuts in the United States. We had uh, almost complete kill by the ink disease, the root disease, but the uh, chestnut blight disease, the canker disease, doesn't kill the root systems, so the the trees continue to sprout. And they've been dying and sprouting ever since 1900, all over the native range, both the uh, uh, tree that's called the American chestnut and the smaller trees that are called chinkapins. And the fact that these trees just don't give up has been a source of, of inspiration to a lot of people, and it's certainly what got me into the, the field of studying chestnuts because I thought somebody ought to do something about this. Yeah, right. Um, we imported a, uh, a biocontrol that had turned up in, in um, Italy, and it was worked on by a man in France. He sent me some cultures. Uh, we discovered that, that the reason this, this uh, control organism worked was that it, uh, it was the same species of fungus causing the cankers, but it had a virus in it, and the virus keeps the fungus from killing trees. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. We can use that in a limited way to keep chestnut trees alive, but it's not something we can we can spread through the forest just because it would be too difficult to do that. Right. So the then the final solution to having chestnut trees of any kind is to breed for resistance, which is what plant people Mm-hmm. want to do ultimately with everything. You can't just keep spraying for diseases. Right. You have to find some way to allow the plants to protect themselves. And um, so the the trees that had been bred mostly for interesting new cultivars or to produce bigger nuts were looked at, and people found that hybrids with Asian chestnuts uh, both European crossed with Asian and American crossed with Asian, had a lot of resistance to both of these serious diseases. So the breeding program, USDA started one, and they were not able to continue it for a lot of reasons. Uh, funding, primarily. Funding, right. Yes. <laughs> um, my experiment station here in Connecticut 
started working with uh, a scientist who was interested in breeding. Uh, that breeding project started in 1930, and it still continues. So it's uh, we're in it for the long haul here. We yeah. have uh, we have cultivars that have been developed that have very good nuts and are resistant to these diseases and are still. Some that were developed in the 50s are still available in uh, uh, nurseries in various places in the country. So what and do we're you, still working on it. What do you think the best cultivars are for, you know, gardeners? Well, it depends on where you are. When when someone sends me an email, and I I get two or three emails a day saying, what should I grow in my backyard? Oh, good. <laughs> my, my first question is always, where are you? Right, mm-hmm. sure. Because I can't tell from the email right. where this person is. <laughs> right. um, and depending on where a gardener is, gro- is going to grow these things, there are different cultivars that do well. There, uh, uh, there are European-Japanese hybrids that do extremely well on the West Coast, mm-hmm. and there are uh, Chinese and Japanese crossed with European or American that are grown on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Italy now, most of the commercial orchards, and in France, I think, are growing Japanese-European hybrids so that they'll have resistance to these diseases. And uh, hybridization and testing continues trying to find better cultivars for more nutritious nuts, as well as cultivars that will resist all of the pests and things that people keep importing into the United States right, <laughs> right. by not going through plant quarantine. Right. <laughs> well, maybe uh, maybe regionally we could get that, that cultivar list from you and list it on our Facebook fan page. Yeah, that would be great. Would uh, be okay, great. it's on our website. Okay, great. We'll, we'll put a link to it um, on our Facebook fan page um, after the show. But I wanted to ask you, Senator, um, something important I think people should know. Um, Chestnuts are not self-fertile, right? So don't people need to have at least two trees That's right. to produce you nuts? To, mm-hmm. You have to have two trees. That's true of practically all the fruit trees, of yes. course. You're going to plant an apple, you got to have two apples. A lot and of people don't know that, though. They think, I'm going to put an apple tree, and then they wonder, what's happened? You know? <laughs> yeah, what, how come I'm not getting any? <laughs> uh-huh. That's right. You have to have two trees, and, and they have to be... Uh, different cultivars because a cultivar by definition is a clone. So if you plant two grafted trees that are the same clone, it's as if you planted the same tree. Right. So you don't get cross-fertilization. You have to have two different cultivars, two different clones. Two nuts to make a nut. That's right. (laughs) That's right. And also people need to make sure that uh, some of the some of the better cultivars are male sterile. That is, they don't produce any pollen. So at least one of the trees you plant had better make some pollen. <laughs> right. Should, should not be male sterile. Right. <laughs> and there's probably a lot of good mail order sources because in most nurseries you don't find chestnut trees typically. So probably the best sources are mail order to get nut trees. Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah, and there are a number of nurseries that that do carry chestnut trees and ship them out in the early spring so you can plant them dormant. And mm-hmm. uh, 
if you plant a grafted tree, you can expect that you'll start getting nuts in a couple of years. Yeah, wow. that's that's fast. It that's is fast, fast. which yeah. is quite fast. If you plant a seedling of almost any of the species, you may wait ten years before you start seeing nuts. So there are big advantages to planting grafted cultivars. Mm-hmm. And you so know what you're getting. You know, you know, you know what, what you're, you're getting. getting. Uh huh. I also want to mention that. Um, Chestnuts are also handsome trees. I mean, besides the nut, you know, the economic and the nutritional value of the nut, they're handsome trees, I think. They provide beautiful shade. Their mm-hmm. leaves are beautiful. Their flowers are beautiful. So even if you if you want to just plant one and you, you're not doing it for the root, they're just a very, I think, a handsome tree. Yes. There, there are two small points that people need to consider when someone calls and says they want to plant one in their yard. I remind them, first of all, that the flowers, the male flowers, smell absolutely awful. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't want one next to my house. (laughs) Um, And in addition to that, the the spines on the burrs are so sharp that... Yeah, they're uh, nasty. They're like cactus thorns. Mm -hmm. And they seem never to go away. So if you plant one in your yard, you'll never be able to go barefoot again because you just can't get rid of all those spines. <laughs> so if you've got a back 40, that's, yeah. that's the place to put them. Yeah, Rustic pursuits. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, I'd love to talk more with you. But um, maybe what I'll do is, is uh, Carmen and I could post some kind of planting tips. Um, we can get some kind of behind-the-scenes tips from you um, mm-hmm. via email and then and direct people to your website again. Sure. Um, and mm. thank you and, so much. And there are a couple of other websites that will be useful, too. Okay. I'll give you those. Great, great. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Sandra. It's You're been, very welcome. It's been a pleasure. You have, you have a wealth of knowledge behind you, and uh, we're lucky to have you on our show. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. So um, our next nut topic... Uh, in a few weeks, will be pecans. <laughs> Again, a nut for the masses and from rustic occupations. We want to thank Jack Inslee for producing our show and Nat Wiener for engineering. Uh, thank you to Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and to our sponsor, Acme Smoked Fish. I wonder if chestnuts goes well with smoked fish. Perhaps it does. Mm. Um, if you missed any part of the show, please note it is available via archive on the website, heritageradionetwork.com, and via podcast on iTunes. Please leave comments and or join our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc., We Dig Plants, or visit our website, www.groundworksgardens.com. Happy Happy gardening. gardening.